The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science. Neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method. And in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Well, good morning, afternoon, or evening from St. Louis, Missouri. I am Marv Schaefer. I'm president of the Missouri Association for Creation. I'm here with Steve Grimes, who is one of our uh, speakers. Uh, Steve kind of specializes in uh, DNA and genetics and things like that. He's like the guru I go to when I'm looking for information. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Marv. So we, our last podcast, we interviewed... Are you interviewed? I jumped in, but you interviewed Rob Carter, Dr. Rob Carter, who was a geneticist at Creation Ministries, and we talked about Adam and Eve and whether Adam is a real figure. I mean, there's, there's, you know, some people believe that uh, the creation story is just that, a story or an allegory, and they don't believe it's uh, real history, but all the top Hebraists in the country will tell you that it is a historical narrative. It is not poetry. It's not allegory. And we had a great discussion about that in the last one. What are we going to be talking about this time? Uh, well, Marv, today is Barabins and Baraminology. And uh, it's a term that relates to uh, after its kind, that statement mm -hmm. that we keep seeing repeated over and over in the Genesis uh, creation account. And uh, Dr. Carter's the perfect wanted to talk about it. He's written papers about it. And um, we uh, think he'll be able to shed some light for us about what that what's going on there. Yeah, he is, uh, Rob is like a prolific uh, writer. He has so many great articles on these topics. And uh, it, it seems like whenever somebody comes out with a creation documentary, it, it seems like he's in it, doesn't it? I mean, he is he is uh, he was in his Genesis history and he was one of the writers and creators of Evolution's Achilles heel, which was done by Creation Ministries. So um, looking forward to this segment. Uh, Steve, anything in particular, any particular roads you're going to go down at a bare minimum? Very good, Marvin. Yeah, no, um, it wasn't, but go ahead. You know, there was Marvin Hagler, and he was marvelous, Marvin. I think I'm going to have to start calling you marvelous. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, I think we're, we're going to take uh, Rob uh, to, into a description uh, and definition of what Behrmans are, why it's a useful concept, and um, it's also still a difficult concept because we don't have clearly defined lines that we can see or point to uh, between the different kinds, but we can recognize it. God's given us the ability to recognize the difference between a dog and a cat, and we can classify things, whether they have fur, they have four legs, they're mammals, they're vertebrates, and so forth. But uh, what other what are other ways do we have to think about or talk about a kind, and why is that important or distinct from genus species? Rob's going to get into all that for us, I think. Okay, awesome. Let's roll. Hey, welcome back. Here we are with Dr. Rob Carter again to discuss baraminology. That's a word that many of us have never heard before, and some of us have maybe heard just a few times. Dr. Carter, can you tell us what a baramin is and what is baraminology? Well, first of all, let me introduce myself. 
I am Robert Carter. I am a geneticist. I work at Creation Ministries International. Our website is creation.com. And I've actually written a lot on baromenology, so I can probably help explain this for everybody. Back in the 1700s, a very famous man named Carl Linnaeus sat down after years and decades of work, actually, and he gave all the species he knew a two-letter name. So we are Homo sapiens. So a two, a two-word, not two-letter, two-word Latin name. And the Homo is our genus, sapiens is our species. And all the things in the world, like, you know, Canis lupus is the wolf, uh, Felis domesticus is the domestic cat. So he gave all these names to all these species. But then he grouped them into larger groups and larger groups and larger groups. And so we have this this scheme that goes from the kingdom to the phylum to class the order of the family, the genus, and the species. And that was the first attempt at classifying all of God's creation, all the biological creation. And it, it doesn't quite work, but it was a good start. Uh, enter modern times. We have um, this idea that God created in the Bible, in fact, read in Genesis, it says that God created species to reproduce after their kinds. But it doesn't explain really what a kind is. And I think it was Marsh in the 40s came up with the term baramin. That's two Hebrew words stuck together for created kind. So the created kinds are the functional unit of creation. God didn't tell us how many kinds. He didn't tell us how many in organisms within each kind or the amount of diversity within the kinds. But we know that when Adam was walking around, he named all the animals, at least that were in the garden, and he could probably say, okay, those are dogs, those are cats, those are horses, those are badgers. So he could identify them by group, but it doesn't mean that all the dogs look the same. And so when he gets kicked out of the garden, I imagine God created more than two dogs. I mean, he, we know he created two people, but the Bible doesn't say anything else about how many other things he created. I imagine there's more than two dogs in the world. So he's, he's wandering around outside the garden and he says, there's other dogs. And wait, these are bigger or hairier or different color or, well, they're still dogs. So how many were there is an interesting question. So, I don't know, two decades ago, a bunch of creationists really started hopping on the, the baromenology bandwagon. And it was a really interesting process where they're looking at different things and they're saying, can we draw a line between them statistically? Can we find something that separates the dogs from the cats? And it turns out to be really, really difficult because it depends on and what characteristics you include. I mean, all dogs and cats have backbones. They have four legs. They're hairy. They have sharp teeth. They have uh, what are called carnassal teeth, which the carnivores have in the back. It's difficult to separate dogs and cats. And when you consider that some cats are small and some are big and some dogs are small and some dogs are big, when you start measuring bones and, and drawing giant tables of different measurements and then trying to throw them into a statistical program, uh, it's tough. So that's baromenology in a nutshell. So how does that relate to cladistics, what you were just describing? Grouping by feature rather than by supposed ancestry. Cladistics is an, an old term for an, an old process, which is basically the same thing. You're grouping things according to what they share or don't share, and you draw circles around different groups. So like the giant circle of all the vertebrates, a smaller circle inside that of the carnivores, and two circles inside that, which would be dogs and cats. Hmm. 
And then when you get to the species level, you're trying to separate lions from tigers, from pumas, to uh, all the different types of cats. And that's cladistics. It's, it's grouping things according to shared characteristics. And I, I love that. It's, it's a fun process. It gets really complicated. I wrote a, um, an article on creation.com with my friend Matthew Cherhati that claimed um, hierarchy complicates baromenology. Because God created hierarchically. He created groups within groups within groups within groups within groups. But he didn't create all the groups the same distance apart. So humans and chimpanzees are really similar. We are. I mean, it's just a fact. We kind of look like them. We share a lot of DNA with them. They eat the same foods we eat. They genetically are very similar to us. So if you're going to compare humans to all the other species, we're going to cluster with chimpanzees. But not only did God not say how many groups he created, he didn't say how far apart they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, theoretically, one letter could separate humans from chimpanzees in the genome. Or billions of letters could separate us from chimpanzees. It doesn't matter either way. However it works out, it works out. That's the way God created it. Now, it turns out there are millions upon millions of letters that separate us from chimpanzees, which is a great sigh of relief for me because that means that we did not evolve from chimpanzees because they don't evolutionists don't have enough time in their six and a half million years to get 30 million letter differences etc 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 but that's a post hoc conclusion we didn't know beforehand we so looking at all the different types of species in the world i mean how do you group them well maybe it's a fool's errand and maybe they can't be grouped easily well, that led me to my next thought, but I think you may be answering it already. Did genetics help with the challenge? And it sounds like it may have given us new information, but really didn't solve this uh, grouping. These Genetics grouping changed everything. Okay. Hundreds of years of people trying to classify organisms based on their shape, their size, shared or not shared characteristics. And when they started sequencing DNA, all that work got thrown out. And redone and all these groups got moved around all these things they, 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 it just shifted it, it was a worthless endeavor all those years and all this evolutionary speculation and all those things saying see that evolution is true because these things are similar in their shape hey dude uh those things are similar genetically oh evolution is true because these things share dna <laughs> you change the story i've heard that line that evolutionary phylogenies were confirmed by modern genetics and it just Seems that, to be one of the true. bolder lies that is told. That absolutely, absolutely false. Evolutionary phylogenies are still taught, but they're completely different than the ones that were taught 20, 30, 50 years ago. Hey, Rob, it's Marv. How you doing? Hey, Marv. Doing good. Just real quick, jumping back, you were talking about the similarities between uh, chimps and humans. And, you know, they've got this big thing where uh, they say, and they've been spreading this for years, that our DNA is 98 percent the same as chimps and when i look at the genomes the actually the chimp genome is 13 percent larger than the human genome so before you even start looking at it there's 13 percent difference where is that now have they changed their thinking on that at all the other side um yes and no the early chimpanzee genome was garbage and they knew it but they've since redone some high-quality chimpanzee genomes. 
and the 13% has changed a bit. Most of that was in the telomeres, the repetitive stuff at the end of the chromosomes, okay. not necessarily in the, the gene content region of the chromosomes. Mm -hmm. and so they've changed that number a bit, but it, the way I say it is this. So earlier I said we could be one letter different from chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. Now, God could have done it that way, but if we're more than like 2 or 3% different, they can't explain the differences within their millions of years. They would have to expand chimpanzees back, the human chimpanzee common ancestor back 10, 20 million years, but that would put apes in the time of the dinosaurs. So they can't do that. And so here's why I say it. If we're more than 3% different, evolution's impossible. The answer is, if okay, excluding the repetitive stuff that makes our genome longer, if you just take random pieces of the rest of the genome and throw it at the chimpanzee genome, or random piece of chimpanzee genome and try to compare it to human genomes, you're going to come up with a figure of 85 to 90% similar. So if we're less than 97%, they're dead, and the answer is about 90-ish. And it depends on what you're counting. It could be 80, it could be 70, it could be 90, but it, it's probably around 90. And it's hard to measure because what do you do with a gene that chimpanzees don't have? How do you say how similar that is? There's like five or 600 genes that humans carry that chimpanzees don't. What kind of a comparison is that? So if you look at the total gene content, there's a certain percent difference. If you look at random pieces of DNA, there's a certain percent different. If you look at the Y chromosomes, they're not even comparable. The mitochondria, I have, I can align mitochondria by hand. I've done it several thousand mitochondria in a DNA alignment program, just hitting spaces and, and deleting things, deleting spaces to get them lined up. I cannot do this with a chimpanzee mitochondria. It's so incredibly different. There's no obvious alignment. You have to use a computer to align it statistically. And that's, uh, oh boy, that's a whole nother a can of worms that introduces all sorts of artifacts. So what they observe then doesn't meet with what they say is essentially what you're saying, right? Uh, they know that the human and chimpanzee genome is much less different than 98%. What they usually say is, oh, yes, it's 98% similar, but they're only talking about the parts that we can measure, and they're ignoring the parts that aren't that similar. They're ignoring the deletions and the duplications and the rearrangements. There's just parts of the human genome you can't line up on the chimpanzee genome. They skip over that. And the parts you can line up, some of them are almost identical. And, but on average, it's it's in the high 90s for the alignable proportions. Yeah, so they're selecting the parts they compare to then Absolutely. determine that percentage. The person who first concluded humans and chimpanzees were 98% identical was an evolutionist at the time. He became a young earth creationist. In fact, I met him at one of your meetings. I have his book, Phylogeny of Birds. I'm looking for it on my bookshelf. Why can't I see it? John Alquist. Uh, John Alquist... Uh, became a young earth creationist before he died, but he is the person who said that humans and chimpanzees are 99 to 98% identical. What he was doing while studying birds, they were taking DNA of different species of birds and extracting the DNA and putting them together, two different species in a test tube. And they would heat it up, heat the water up, and then cool it down, and the DNA would realign. So the DNA would separate, and you have two strands of DNA from each species. They'd separate, and the DNA would realign. 
And depending on how similar the species were, the DNA would realign at different temperatures. And you could see by passing light through the test tube, you could see the, uh, the absorption change. When the DNA was melted, the light would go right through it. But as it's realigning, the water would get more cloudy, I guess you would say, and the absorption would, would increase. And so by measuring that temperature, you could estimate similarity. And they did that with humans and chimpanzees. And they concluded like 99% identical. Later on, what he realized was that's only for the parts that match. The parts that don't match will never align. And so, yeah, you have some parts that are highly similar, and that's where you got your, your change in your absorption. And the rest of it never aligned, and that could have been 99% of it by itself. He didn't know how much the non-alignable portions was. It turns out to be, I don't know, probably 10% or so. So he rejected his own conclusions. Evolutionists have ignored his rejection, and they play fast and loose with the numbers today. Uh, that sounds typical. Change directions just a little bit because okay. uh, I have this gift of a, of a PhD geneticist sitting in front of me uh, virtually. A light bulb came on to me in one of your videos. Uh, it was, I think it was a CMI video. You mentioned the four-dimensional aspect of DNA. Oh, yeah. And I had... I had gotten to three, the, the winding around the histone protein, I think is that third dimension. But can you just review those four dimensions of DNA? And, and it leads me to a second question, So, I, but I'll let you do those first. When I first realized that DNA was multidimensional, my mouth hit the floor. That was I my said, second I, question. How could it not hit the floor? This is a handiwork of God. My, my brain exploded. I was like, this is what? This is, Huh? And so I had to talk about it. And I gave a talk at one of our creation super conferences that um, was one of my favorite talks I've ever done. And it was the first time I gave the talk. And for some reason, it just came out really good. And there was a TV camera there. So we turned it into a video. And it's called The High Tech Cell, uh, which is available on creation.com. And I've also written an article on creation.com, The Four-Dimensional Genome Defies Evolutionary Expectations or something like that. The concept of multidimensionality is really amazing. We learn in science and math class, in math specifically, a line is a one-dimensional object. It has length, but no width. So it's only one dimension. It has a length only. Well, you can say DNA is a one-dimensional thing. It's a very long, skinny molecule. In fact, you have, oh, about three feet of DNA in every one of your cells. In fact, um, oh no, three meters of DNA, because your, um, your chromosome one is about one foot long. So you can stretch something out a foot and you can, it's so skinny you can't even see it. It's microscopically skinny and a foot long. That's just chromosome one. So you can treat DNA as a line. It has length but no width. That's the first dimension. A series of letters, just AC. A series of letters, three billion letters broken up into 23 uh, chromosomes and then the mitochondrial chromosome. And it's several feet long. Yeah, you have six feet in every cell. So you have about three feet of DNA in the genome. You have two genomes in your cells. So about six feet in each cell. Well, if you want to take six feet of string and pack it into a ball, that would be really hard to do. In fact, if you took your DNA and made it as wide as your hair, the human hair, you'd have 32 miles of DNA. And if you want to proportionally, you'd have to be stuffing it into something smaller than a basketball. So you'd have 32 miles of hair inside a basketball. That's what's inside your nucleus. 
Ah, I skipped a third dimension. I got to talk about the second dimension first. The second dimension of the genome is the way one gene interacts with another. And so if you wanted to draw a picture of that, you'd have to print out your genome on one giant sheet of paper, all three billion letters, and then circle one gene and draw an arrow to another gene that that gene influences. Because they talk to each other. This gene might make an RNA that sticks to the DNA in someplace else and turns off that other gene, or it might make a protein that floats around the cell and grabs onto the DNA and turns on a gene or turns off a gene. There's all these interactions happening in the genome. And to draw that interaction network, you need a giant sheet of paper and a bunch of arrows pointing everywhere from this piece to that piece to that piece to that piece to that piece. That's a two-dimensional system. Your paper's two-dimensional. Print out the DNA and draw all the arrows on it. That's two dimensions. The third dimension is how the DNA folds into a three-dimensional shape. That influences a lot because when your DNA, it gets wound up on proteins called histone proteins, like beads on a string. And then they, they get wound into wines of wines and then wines of wines of wines. Now, chromosomes just condense down. And then when they're in the nucleus, the position of the genes depends on that first dimension. Because wherever God located that gene, when the chromosome folds up, the gene's going to be in a certain location in the genome. So that third dimension is really important. After the human genome was sequenced, one of the first papers I read, these people looked at genes that are used together. Now, in bacteria, genes that are used together tend to cluster right next to each other so that cell can just turn them all on at the same time. And they said, well, hey, if you know if that's true, we expect genes that are used together in humans to be near each other on the genome. And it's not true. They're not near each other. They're randomly scattered about in the genome. And so the, the authors said, oh, look at that. It's just junk. It's just millions of years of evolutionary baggage. And the genes are just randomly scattered in the genome. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no order to it. Yeah, and then five or six years later, someone realized that if you take a cell and treat it with formaldehyde, the DNA will cross-link. So any DNA that's near each other will stick together. And then you can cut the DNA up and into all these X-shaped things and sequence the arms of the X. And they found out that the genes that are used together tend to be right next to each other in three-dimensional space, even if they're on different chromosomes. So... One of the ways, and I'll let you get back to that, one of the ways I have analogized this is if I took a long a garden hose and I painted a purple spot at one sp place, and then I walked 10 feet down, I painted a yellow spot, and I said, that purple spot controls that yellow spot. They interact with each other. It looks like just two spots. I roll my garden hose up on the garden hose reel, and they come up right next to each other based on the you know the rolling the thickness of that's the, a good analogy and um, amazingly analogy. now they're aligned and that to me was that third dimension light bulb that just wow this yeah. is designed except uh, the dna doesn't roll up in a nice coil right but on the histone it has very uh, complex folding patterns and it's but yeah that, that's yeah. a good start yes yes a simplification so no doubt we learn that genes that are used together tend to be near each other in 3d but they also tend to be in a pocket of empty space in the nucleus. And that pocket is right next to a nuclear pore. So when you need to turn on a suite of genes, 
all those genes are near each other. They can all be turned on at the same time and all their RNAs go out the pore and all the things can be turned into proteins or regulatory RNAs at the same time as a group. So when God programmed the genome, he knew how the chromosomes are going to fold and he optimized the positions of the genes such that these associations work. One of the big differences between humans and chimpanzees is gene order. We might have a lot of the same genes, but they're not in the same places. So they're not used in the same way. The chromosomes fold differently. Genes have different combinations in a chimpanzee. And so if we're optimized now, you have to ask the question, can you go through a morph where you start with this optimization and morph it over to a different optimization? But what happens in between when you're not optimized? Well, your species is going to die. So we get stuck in the human-like genome or chimpanzee-like genome and transitioning from one to the other turns out to be really difficult. And then to put a cherry on the top, we know that the things that convert the RNA into protein, we knew that there were different versions of those in the cell. And those different versions work optimally with different letter sets. So you have 64 three-letter combinations of A, C's, G's, and T's. But it's only 20 amino acids that are coded for those 64 letter sets. So some amino acids have more than one three-letter code, like AAA, AAG, AAT, AAC, that all codes for the same amino acid. I think that's glycine. It might be alanine. I forget. But it's all codes for the same amino acid. Well, some ribosomes work better with AAA, and some ribosomes work better with AAG. And it turns out that the genes that are clustered together they tend to have either AAA or AAG, but a different set of genes will have AAA or maybe AAC. They use different letter sets and the ribosomes are tuned to work optimally with different sets of genes. So it's a, another higher level of specification and order that nobody predicted and it makes it more difficult for evolution to explain where this stuff came from because optimization is not something that's supposed to happen in evolution. Evolution is supposed to be random. It's supposed to be inefficient. You don't get an efficient system through random changes, ever. Even natural right, selection, right. all that can do is slow down the randomization. It cannot produce an optimal system. And yet that's what we see. And the fourth dimension. Ah, the fourth dimension is time. We live in a four-dimensional universe. We have length, width, height, and time. Well, that also applies to the genome because the first three dimensions all change over time. There are dynamic reprogramming systems in your genome where things will literally be turned on and turned off. Your DNA will be reprogrammed. Your brain cells are genetically different from each other. There's a little piece of DNA called the retrotransposon, which is a piece of DNA that can pop out of their genome, make a circle, float around and stick somewhere else. And so it can pop out and pop in and your brain cells, as your brain is developing in your mother's womb, these things are popping in and out of the brain cell DNA and changing the genome of the brain cells. So let me, <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. And we're not talking about between species or over time descendants. We're talking about within no. a single organism. 
within uh, you, the, within your, you, your cells have different genomes. Your DNA is changing over time and it is optimized for the purpose it has at the cellular level. So your liver cell yeah. DNA, I've heard, is different than the yeah. skin cell DNA, skin cell also getting all the mutations. Liver, is, because but, it has to do a lot of biological processing, your liver cells will differ from one another. They will duplicate chromosomes to get more copies of a specific gene. And so you can't say the human genome when each human has different genomes. Right. And it's a gene that's different than you inherited from your mother's fertilized egg. It, yeah. It has yeah. changed over time. brain cells specifically, yeah. Right, right. So it has changed over time. That fourth dimension really, uh, it's amazing that's at the every first level. Dimension. The second dimension also changes over time. Yes. The interaction that you don't need the same genes as an adult that you needed in puberty. And you didn't need the same genes in puberty that you needed while you're developing in your mother. So genes are turned on and turned off and the switching networks and the, the chromosomes in the fourth dimension now have to change shape to expose different genes at different times. If you're changing shape over time, that's the fourth dimension. Your genome changes over three different dimensions or four different dimensions. And that's crazy that it's so complicated and it's so amazing. And all it does is bring glory to God. I totally agree. In computer science, one of the greater challenges is self-modifying code. Trying to write code that modifies itself is, is a real challenge and you can get into a mess very quickly. And yet Back here we have- in the 70s, they started experimenting with that and pretty much everyone gave up. Yes. Because yeah. it produced too much chaos. Right. And here you have a system that is doing that and keeping us yeah. alive and, and optimizing us, as you mentioned. Yeah. And yet sometimes things get out of whack, hence cancer. Sure. Cancer is when you, this optimized system, something breaks, and now the, a cell is reproducing when it's not supposed to. There's even a possibility that some viruses came from the human genome because our cells produce a lot of things that look like viruses. We produce protein coats. We encapsulate RNAs and DNAs in them. And we make things that look like viruses naturally. And if something that we're doing naturally grabs the wrong set of DNA and puts it inside, all of a sudden you've got a virus that can infect another person. Hmm. But that four-dimensional system is highly tuned and highly specified. But if something gets out of whack, you can have a lot of problems. As we see in the fallen world that we live in. Yeah. Marv, you look like you've got a question over there. Well, I was just going to say it's uh, we need to be wrapping it we up. we got to wrap up, but... You know, I think it's time that we read Romans 1, verse 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that is what which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being un understood by what has been made, so they are without excuse. When I listen to what you just described, Rob, and listen, I'm a marketing guy. I've been in sales my whole life. I am not a scientist. I can't imagine somebody with a background in science that studied it in college and understands it at the level that you understand it can look at that and say that's random chance over millions of years. Yes, except most people 
have to believe it's random chance over millions of years because the alternative is that the God of the Bible is real and is going to hold people accountable for their actions. And most people don't like that thought. And so they turn to anything else. And billions of years of time sure does seem like enough time for chance to produce what we see. It doesn't work that way, but they can at least hide behind that because God of the Bible is terrifying to many people. Well, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I think it is, says, uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And uh, I think that that works into this too. Yeah. Well, Rob, thanks for being with us. This has been mind-blowing in some ways and eye-opening in others. <laughs> and uh, this has been awesome. We'd love to have you back sometime, Rob. Anytime. Best of luck with all your... Uh, engagements with CMI. I know you get through St. Louis from time to time. I don't see it on your schedule here anytime soon, but we look forward to seeing you again. I'm very much looking forward to coming back again someday. Yes, thank you, Rob. I have questions for the next time already uh, written up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Rob, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Well, Steve, I guess we could have gone on for, you know, seven, eight hours there, you think? I think so. Uh, In fact, uh, I think we've got material for the next uh, time we can get Rob uh, on a podcast. We definitely want to do that. You know, one of the great things about Rob is he he just makes himself so available for things like this. He is just wonderful in that regard. So give me the highlights. What did you think were the highlights? I think... um, and I was glad that we were able to get uh, Rob to talk about some of his earlier uh, presentations and things that he's done because they've they've been like light bulbs for me. And the, the four-dimensional structure of DNA is really eye-opening uh, in, to me in terms of pointing to a designer. Um, you know, it's been said that if you, you see a painting, you know it had a painter. If you see a watch, you know it had a watchmaker. And when you see something that is at the scale of the four-dimensional uh, working DNA in our every cell of our body, uh, it is uh, pointing to a creator. It's pointing to a designer. It, it's amazing to me, with the knowledge that these scientists have, that they can look at these things under a microscope and understand things that I couldn't even begin to conceptualize, how um, intricate it is and how complex it is. I just can't imagine that they can look at this and think random chance is responsible. It's just beyond amazing to me. I think it's evidence of spiritual blindness. Again, one of the truths that God reveals in his word. This is not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. It absolutely is. Well, Steve, thanks again for conducting that interview. And uh Uh, Steve is going to be back with us, and actually I'm going to interview Steve for our next (laughs) Show Me Creation podcast about the James Webb Space Telescope, which you've done a lot of research on, and actually did a recent talk at one of our MAC meetings about what you found out. Can you give us just a brief preview of of, uh, what we're going to be covering in the next podcast? Yes. Um, Well, it is probably the most sophisticated space telescope ever put 
in space, and it's revealing things again that align so well with God's word and reveal the majesty of our creator, and it's a cause to celebrate again his, his created works and also to marvel at his power. It's, it, and it's actually blown apart pretty much everything, well, maybe not everything, but a lot of what they had believed prior to the James Webb telescope coming on the scene, correct? Oh, yes. There are headlines, uh, cosmology in crisis type headlines, because it is changing. The Big Bang was already uh, on, had a few threads uh, that were uh, pretty worn uh, in terms of holding it up, uh, and now they've been also uh, made even more threadbare. So, yes, this is creating all sorts of issues. So it was being held together with, uh, what, staples and paper clips <laughs> and like rubber that. bands and scotch tape, and, and this pretty much blew it apart, right? The, the duct tape is failing. The du- <laughs> All right. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Show Me Creation podcast. We hope you'll join us next month, and Steve and I will continue our conversation about the James Webb Space Telescope and how it continues to remind us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Again, if you have any questions or comments, feedback, contact us here at podcast at MissouriCreation.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. Uh, you can find all of our episodes and sc- subscription options at our website, MissouriCreation.com slash podcast. Thank you for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer. I'd like to leave you with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Catch you next time.